Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. Do not stand idly by while your neighbor's blood is shed. This is a passage from Leviticus. I don't know if it's a good translation. I do know it's a good directive. Do not stand idly by. This is the call of our faith. It calls us to our humanity, to feel for others and to act. Figuring out what to do is increasingly overwhelming. But I want to stress that do not stand idly by does not say fix everything. We just need to do something. One thing. The next one thing we can do. Today, we're here upholding and uplifting one another. On Tuesday, we vote. Ken put a bumper sticker on our van that says, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. (laughs) Obviously. And how much do we love that rush of righteous anger, the roaring in the ears, the energy? Alas, outrage is a bit like sugar. A steady diet of it does not nourish us. It does not motivate us. We're up and then we're down. It enervates us. It eviscerates us. We can afford to indulge perhaps one hot moment of outrage, but only if it propels us into action. And despair? Despair is a luxury we cannot afford. What's the alternative? Faith and great love. Do not stand idly by. Dodge City, Kansas is a majority Hispanic city of some 27,000 citizens. They have one polling station. And last month, officials moved that one polling station outside city limits and one mile from any bus stop. What can we do? Lyft stepped in to offer free rides to and from the polls. Do not stand idly by while your neighbor's blood is shed. A week ago on Saturday, 11 worshipers were killed at Tree of Life Temple in the deadliest anti-Semitic attack in America. Less than one week later, Celebrate Mercy and Empower organized a crowdfunding campaign called Muslims Unite for Pittsburgh Synagogue. 
By midweek, they had raised more than $200,000 to support the survivors. The donation page says, we wish to respond to evil with good as our faith instructs us and send a powerful mission of compassion through action. Our faith, too, calls us to do something. Between now and Tuesday, we'll walk through our days with an eye and an ear out for the next best thing we can do. Maybe it's texting a voter in Texas, calling a congressperson, making sandwiches for Yes on Three campaign staffers, giving someone a ride to the polls. Giving money is doing something. Maybe it's saying hello. Smiling at someone is doing something. Don't overthink it. Just do something. And on Wednesday morning, no matter which way these elections go, we need to get up and keep doing something. This is our faith. Do not stand idly by. Do something. Some of our new members were asking about our history as a faith tradition. There are a lot of great places to read about it, and there's a lot to say. For today, just one paragraph on universalism. Don't worry, it's not boring. Universalism is exactly what we need for such a time as this. It began as heresy. In the 18th century, Puritan Jonathan Edwards warned his parishioners of a distant, angry God who would doom humankind to a hell of eternal damnation. At the dawn of the 19th century, Reverend Hosea Ballou, the universalist heretic, proclaimed a God that was neither wrathful nor judgmental. Once when Ballou was preaching here in Boston, a rock came through a window and landed nearby. He picked it up and proclaimed, this argument is solid and weighty, but it is neither reasonable nor convincing. God is love, he said, the source of all goodness and mercy. Every one of us is precious, said the good reverend, and by God's grace, every one of us is headed to heaven. And so Calvinism's gospel of human depravity was met with the gospel of universal salvation and the great heart of universalism. Our faith has continued to evolve. When the Unitarians and the Universalists joined forces in the early 1960s, it was a match made in heaven. The Universalists thought God was too good to damn them, and the Unitarians thought they were too good to be damned. All of it, yeah, all of it points to our first principle, a covenant to affirm and promote the inherent worth and dignity of every being. I will give you that this is not an easy faith for these times. The seemingly endless inhumanity, the depravity of some humans is fathomless. But we are called to keep this faith, never give up, and to engage wholeheartedly on the side of love, not to hate, but to love. And what does that look like? In a minute, I'm going to tell you a really good story. 
Stephanie Somerville graduated from college and has gone on to a successful career as a singer and musical theater performer living in New York City. But she spent her childhood dreaming of escaping Evansville, Indiana, where she was the only black kid she knew. She was thrilled to head off to a historically black college in Atlanta and to experience the culture of the African diaspora and change the world with her stunning achievements. But almost immediately it all unraveled. The president of the college embezzled from the scholarship funds. And then Stephanie was taking a course on a film set, but three and a half weeks in, the producers and directors disappeared along with the course credit. Her scholarship was gone and her always perfect GPA was ruined. She lost her housing and slept on the stockroom floor of a McDonald's where she worked until she got her first paycheck. She bought a bus ticket, rode home to Southern Indiana and plunged into a deep depression. After a couple of weeks, she managed to get up and open a newspaper to look for a job. She saw an ad for people to sit with elderly shut-ins, feed them and give them their medicine. And she thought, what better job for a person who's depressed than to have a job sitting, just sitting? She was hired. And of course, the newest person gets the hardest assignment. Her first client lived in a little house in an all-white neighborhood, and he was very, very sick. Stephanie knocks on the door. A white woman comes to the door and says, go away. Stephanie says, hi, ma'am, I'm from Health Skills. I'm here because you needed a sitter. The woman says, go away. I don't want you here. She goes to the phone, calls Health Skills, slams down the phone, and opens the door. Stephanie's client is dying of cirrhosis of the liver. Unconscious, he's on a respirator. Every 15 minutes, his airway needs to be cleared. This is very unpleasant work. But, says Stephanie, being an overachiever and wanting this job and wanting to do well, I throw myself into the work helping the woman. When they finish, the woman is glaring at her with hatred in her eyes. Stephanie has no idea what's wrong, but she says, look, I can get this now. The woman doesn't speak. She goes to the next room and sits where she can watch Stephanie. And then Stephanie says, I'm looking around the room, and um, it's got a floor-to-ceiling Confederate flag hanging behind the man's bed. And the thing is that when you're depressed, she says, it takes a while for the gears to kick in. I'm taking in the furniture. I'm so Martha Stewart. I'm into decorating and everything. And I notice a little coat tree, and I notice that on the coat tree, there's this beautiful robe, kind of like a church robe, except it's white. And it has a round circle with a white cross on it and a hood but I'm still not grasping what's happening because I am totally amazed by the buttonhole stitching around the eyes of the hood. <laughs> the woman is still looking at me. 
And the way we deal with things socially in Indiana is that we try to normalize things. So that's what I did. I pick up a book that looks like a Bible. It's got gilt lettering on the outside, and I'm looking for something peaceful and happy to read, maybe the Psalms. And I come across this manifesto about the superiority of the white race and how we all need to annihilate everyone else. And I shut the book. And it finally hits me that I am in the home of a Ku Klux Klansman and I am a black woman. Just then, Stephanie's client's airway clogs and she thinks, thank God I have something to do. And she's so glad he's unconscious because he hates her. And she thinks you cannot think about this because you need a job and you are so depressed you can't do anything else. This is no time for a Rosa Parks moment. You have to go through with this. And she thinks, you know, I am an overachiever. I can totally do this. I am not going to let racism stand in my way. I am going to get this done. I am going to do it well. I am going to get an A plus. I am going to get a check. And I am going to get out of here. And that is exactly what she did. Every 15 minutes for four hours, she leapt into action, caring for this man who wanted her dead. And she came back the next day. The woman let her in without a word, but at least she didn't watch her. She went to watch TV. And the next day, the woman wasn't quite as unfriendly, and she went to lie down a little. Stephanie realized that the woman wasn't getting any rest until she arrived to take care of the man. And she felt sad that they had no one to help them. On the fourth day, at the end of her shift, Stephanie had to awaken the woman from a deep sleep. On the fifth day, it was over. The man had died. And the woman had left Stephanie a message. She wanted her to know that Stephanie had given him the best care he'd received, that when Stephanie was there was the only peace and rest she ever got and she wanted to thank her, so she was leaving her a tip. Stephanie Somerville wasn't allowed to keep the tip, but she says she realized that she got something more valuable, and it was this. The knowledge that we had met, she and I, these two incredibly desperate people in a highly charged, highly provocative situation, it could have been a mess. But instead, we came together and our lives touched. And in that touching, we changed the trajectory of our lives just a little bit. I'd like to think I changed the way she thinks about people of color, that we aren't whatever it is that she's been taught. And for myself, I got a job that got me out of bed. I had left Indiana to change the world, and I'd had to come home. But I realized that even if I couldn't change the whole world, I could change a little piece of the world that I was in. And for now, that was enough. That was enough. Beloved spiritual companions, we can afford neither a steady diet of outrage 
nor of despair. This is our faith. Do not stand idly by. Do something. May we answer the call to our humanity to feel for others, to proclaim the inherent worth and dignity of every being, and to act. May we be heretical. We may not change the whole world, but we can change a little piece of the world we are in. Let us keep this faith, never give up. Let us engage wholeheartedly on the side of love. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear from you via email at office at ASCBoston.org or through our Facebook page. If you would like to support the good work of Arlington Street Church, please consider a contribution by checking the mail or through our website, ASCBoston.org.